man. Well, we are coming to the end of our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Not the end of the Holy Spirit's work at our church, (laughs) but the end of our sermon series talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, um, specifically kind of looking at different passages and um, to think about how He works within His church. And our last sermon, our last sermon in this series is going to be about Spirit-filled worship. Um, We talked last week about the gifts of the Spirit, the various gifts. Some of them are perhaps more miraculous, sometimes called more charismatic. Some of them are more, uh, you know, teaching and things like that, helps, administration. There's all different gifts that it gives the body. Um, A lot of these gifts are used to lead people to worship. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 14, where we're going to be looking. We're going to talk about worship. That the worship of the local church should be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. When I think about uh, spirit-filled worship, a couple of things come to mind from the Bible. The first one is King David. Uh, King David went through a lot of trials, uh, but when it finally became time for him to become king, he decides to strip down to his tidy whities He strips down to his underwear, and he dances in front of all the people um, as he enters into Jerusalem as an act of worship. And it's almost like he's just saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what all the people think. Ultimately, this is just my way of, of worshiping the Lord. Uh, you know, I noticed at the uh, one thing, if you go to a wedding or a, a bat mitzvah or whatever, you know, like the, the time for dancing comes. And then there's usually those one or two people who are just willing to say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to get out on the dance floor and just give it everything I got, right? I love people like that. They, they inspire me. And uh, we had a couple that, I think, last night. But I think that's David. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. His only concern, ultimately, is what does the Lord see? That's spirit-filled worship. And then I think of the Psalms as well, particularly the last few Psalms, last three, two or three or four Psalms. If you get a chance to read them this week, it talks about just singing, shouting to the Lord, using all the instruments that they had available to them, stringed instruments or tambourines or whatever it is, and just praising the Lord. He talks about the trees clapping their hands. I mean, the, the mountains singing to his praise. All of creation declares the glory of God and His people joining in to worship, to magnify Him. That's, I think, spirit-filled worship. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 14, um, he talks about how spirit-filled worship should characterize our church. And he sort of gives us some, some guidelines of how that should play itself out. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 33. And let's see if we can learn a little bit about spirit-filled worship from, from the Scriptures here. We read this, Brothers... Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. But if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is a passage I think that oftentimes is not talked about, not preached on, and at least in Baptist churches, because it talks a lot about tongues and prophecy. But there's some really important principles, I think, at place here that I think we're going to learn and listen to. So, verses 20 to 25, let worship be understandable and evangelistic and outreach-focused. Let it be understandable and outreach-focused. The sort of governing command in this whole section is verse 20. Uh, Brothers, so he's talking to the church there, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be children in your thinking. Uh, Do not be immature in the way you reason and think here. Be infants in evil. So yes, there is a child-likeness. Jesus said, anyone who doesn't have faith like a child will not enter the kingdom. There's a certain, uh, we want to model children when it comes to being innocent of evil. We want to model them in terms of having childlike faith. But when it comes to your thinking, he's saying, be mature. It's time for you to, to grow up in your thinking. Maybe there's lots, remember, there's lots of problems going on in the church in Corinth. Uh, really a powerful supernatural work is happening there in Corinth. Uh, but there's a lot of selfishness, there's a lot of self-glorification, and really particularly a misuse of this gift of tongues, which we'll talk about in just a bit. Then he quotes from Scripture, verse 21, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He quotes from Isaiah, chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And the context of that, this is interesting, you may not have realized this in just the first reading, is a context of judgment. Uh, So he's talking there about the Assyrian Empire and their invasion of Israel as they conquer them. So the presence of a foreign tongue in Israel there was a sign of judgment. That that Israel had disobeyed God and God was bringing judgment upon them uh, because of that. It was not a good thing. So he says that's that's the strange tongue that's being spoken there in Israel. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. You may have thought he would have said that in reverse. The tongues are for believers. Prophecy for... No, he says it. The tongues are a sign for unbelievers. What does he mean? Well, it all depends on what you think of the sign. Uh, the sign he has in mind here, we usually think of a sign from God as a good thing. In this context, he's seeing it as a bad thing. Uh, this is not a good sign. This is a sign of judgment. So if a church is speaking in tongues and nobody's interpreting what is said, that's not a good sign. Because if somebody comes in, they're going to have no clue what you're talking about and they're going to be turned off from you. It's a sign of judgment, whereas prophecy is a sign for believers. So what does he say? Uh, He kind of gives that very specific situation. Verse 23, if somebody comes, as the whole church comes together and somebody comes in, an outsider, an unbeliever comes in, and everybody's speaking in tongues, and nobody's interpreting, that's kind of the context here, what are they going to say? They're going to say, 
you guys are nuts. <laughs> you guys are crazy. I don't even know what you guys are saying. I don't know what's going on here, but I am never coming back. And they're going to quickly leave out the door. In fact, that's kind of what happened um, to my family. Uh, when I was 14, we had a sort of household conversion. Um, so all of us kind of came to know Christ right around that time. My parents and around that same time. And so we started looking for a church at that point, and We popped into um, what was a, as an Assemblies of God church. And um, we, we walked in, and they were speaking in tongues. And if I remember, uh, there was no interpretation. And uh, my dad in particular said, let's get out of here, and we're never coming back here. <laughs> so he had no idea what was going on. So very thing that he describes here, it sounds crazy. Uh, so that's why he says, stick with prophecy, uh, or interpreted tongues, we'll see. But if, if it's prophecy, what happens? An unbeliever, outsider comes in. I love what he describes here. Now they can comprehend. Now they can understand What's being said, and hopefully the, the goal is there's a deep conviction of their own sin, as we were all sinners, a realization of the holiness of God, and then worship, which is then hopefully the idea here is conversion. They're coming to trust in Christ and recognizing that God is truly among you. His point being that your worship should be understandable, <laughs> comprehensible. Uh, it should be understandable and it should be evangelistic. Now let me just give you a little, I want to talk a little bit more about tongues because I know we, we mentioned that last week. It may have caused some confusion and uh, if, especially if this is your first week here you're probably, and you're not familiar with this, you're probably wondering what this is all about. Uh, this idea of tongues, the Greek word glossolalia, um, just glossa just means tongue, lalia speak, tongue speaking. Um, I think there are different forms of it in scripture. Um, there's three in particular. Uh, so one form of that is in Acts 2, and this is pretty amazing and powerful. You have people who speak all different languages, and so they can't communicate with one another. So Peter gets up, and he speaks in this glossolalia. He speaks in tongues. And what happens is, people who speak a totally different language can understand it. Miraculously. Sort of the reversal of the Tower of Babel, when he, God confused all the languages. Here he makes them one, he brings them Back together. Uh, does that still happen today? Uh, probably on rare occasions, uh, particularly in that sort of missionary setting, God might still use this form of glossolalia. Um, I did hear uh, uh, what, you know, I have no reason to doubt that it's not true. Doubt that it's true. I have no reason to think that it's not true. Um, this is in uh, the Alpha course. If you heard of Alpha, it's pretty recognizable um, material that's used in churches all over the place. Uh, this is one story about this lady. Um, who was, uh, her name was Penny, uh, and she was at a retreat, and she was praying for a, a newer Christian, or perhaps a, a non-Christian, a seeker, named Anna, and uh, she was praying for her and praying for her, and she ran out of words, so she started praying for her in tongues, and uh, the lady Anna stopped and said, well, you know, you're speaking Russian. She spoke Russian, and she said, I don't know any Russian, so you tell me, what am I actually saying? <laughs> and she said, you're saying, my dear child, my dear child, my dear child. And she said that's exactly what she needed to hear, that God loves her. If she had just said God loves you, then she would have said, well, you know, you're just saying that because, you, you know, it was God's way of sort of revealing that he does love this lady, Anna. Uh, so does God still use that form of glossolalia? Perhaps, probably. It seems like he does. The second form is sort of as a prayer language. So this is sort of you silently or if no one else is around, it doesn't have to be silent, but your, your way of talking to God in a way that just doesn't actually use human words anymore. Just sort of, you're speaking 
uh, directly to God um, in a way that can't be comprehended by words. And he talks about that even a little later in this passage. Uh, glossolalia in prayer. Um, so last week I talked about tongues. I don't normally talk about tongues. We're a Baptist church. We don't usually use tongues. Uh, so it was an unusual type of sermon, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and it was right there in 1 Corinthians 12. And after the service, as I finished, uh, a sister in Christ came up to me and she said, You know what, Pastor Rick, um, last night, so last night for her, um, I was speaking in tongues in prayer. It's only happened to me a few times in my life, and I didn't know why. And then I came here this Sunday morning, and you preached what you preached. And I'm going to use this as an encouragement to you, which is the point of the gifts, isn't it? So yes, God, does God use that as a prayer language? And then the third use, and the one he's really primarily zeroing in here, is the use of it in a worship service. So somebody speaks in a tongue in a worship service, and he says, if that ever happens, if you use it that way, it must always be interpreted. There needs to always be someone who can then clarify what is being said. He even says, if you don't have anyone, then it acts ultimately as a form of judgment on those who don't know Christ because it sounds confusing and chaotic and ultimately scary and mysterious and turns people away. Make sure your worship is understandable. And I think, friends, it's not just tongues. I think in every which way. Uh, is our worship understandable as a church? Uh, notice the expectation there was that a non-Christian, an outsider, could walk in on their worship services at any point in time. That there was an expectation. They met in uh, homes, by the way, houses. They didn't have church buildings at this point in time. But nevertheless, it would be open so that an outsider, maybe this inviter, or maybe just happens to wander in, is going to happen to be part of that worship service. And what are they going to think of it? So that's something that we should be considering. Uh, Do we use only insider language? Uh, You know, sometimes it's called Christianese. Uh, something that, if, if an outsider came in, they would have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's so easy for us sometimes to use language and to do things that people don't even know um, what it means. And I think it's cautious that we can do this with theological language at times, too. We can use big theological terms that people have no idea what we're talking about. I was doing some, uh, a little bit of evangelism way back in, uh, during seminary in a local college with this one guy, uh, friend, Blaine. And as he was talking, this one kid had a question about the Trinity, uh, and he explained it by using the term functional subordination. And I said, Blaine, I think you probably made it more confusing by using that big theological term than actually clarify, because you know, that doesn't make any sense, even less clear than the Trinity, right? The idea was that the Trinity, there are three equal persons of the Trinity, but they're different in their functions. Some are subordinate to another, but nevertheless, it was more confusing. We can do that by doing things that are confusing. I've had uh, someone tell me before that the first time coming to to communion here, um, they thought as soon as you get the bread, you take it and you put it in your mouth. (laughs) As soon as you get the the cup, you take it and you drink it. Because nobody said, hold on to this until we do communion. Uh, Just thinking about what would somebody new think about what we do as a church? Are Are we understandable by what we do? We want to be clear. You know, I, the, the term seeker-sensitive has really been uh, bashed pretty hard lately. And the idea was that just recognizing, uh, yes, the church is for believers primarily, for the worship of believers. But as he says right here, recognizing that sometimes an outsider will come in. Will they know what's going on? Will it be clear? Will you explain things? Are you, are you thinking of them in mind? Are you ready for guests to come? Uh, is it understandable? Is it evangelistic? Is our worship comprehensible to somebody 
on the outside. Worship should not be confusing. It should be clear. Then he says that worship should be participatory and edifying. Verse 26. I love this verse right here in 26. And hopefully we're modeling this and even this morning. But he says, what then, brothers? So again, talking to the church. When you come together. Uh, notice the assumption is that Christians come together. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, they, it was just an assumption. It was just assumed that if you're a believer in Christ, you gather with God's people. Uh, you gather weekly with God's people. Yeah, there may be some exceptions from here and there, but generally speaking, what you do is you gather with God's people. Uh, it's strange to hear, I think, that that's sort of uh, no longer an assumption. You know, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I'm a Christian, but I don't need to be part of organized religion. I just sort of go out into the woods and pray, and that's my whole church. Uh, the New Testament would know nothing of that. <laughs> uh, yes, Christianity goes beyond our gathered worship. But yes, when you come together, when it happens, uh, what happens in our gatherings, he says, each one, uh, not necessarily meaning every single person, but you can see that there's a participation in God's people gathered. Uh, one person has a hymn, it's leading in a, a song of worship. Another, a lesson, that's probably a sermon in mind there. I think we could apply that to other contexts. Upstairs, there's kid town going on. Somebody's giving a lesson to the kids. A revelation probably refers to prophecy, a tongue, interpretation. Uh, The point being that there's a diversity of gifts being utilized as God's people gather. I think that is so important. It's not not a one-man show. (laughs) I have a friend who became a pastor of a church up in Maine. And a uh, relatively smaller church, but... In the beginning, they had him doing everything. Uh, everything that has to be done, he basically did it. And then even on Sunday morning, he ran the entire service from beginning to end. And he began to realize, I'm getting totally burnt out. <laughs> and this is not going to work. So he told his church, he said, look, this can't be the case. This, this can't be the, the, the dancing baboon show. I, I can't do everything. So we've got to bring people in. So even if you, if you don't think you can sing well, whatever, we'll get a group of people standing up here. And at least they're just being seen by other people. And other people can do announcements. And other people can do prayers. And, and they begin to diversify what happens in their church. I think that is far more biblical. Uh, it's others being involved. People coming up like Elaine and giving a, a testimony of how God's worked and Dennis coming up and praying for for Willie and last week Frank telling us what's going on in the the prisons and next week uh, Jen's going to Lord willing give us a a chalk drawing and it's it's a church sharing what God is doing and sharing the gifts that they have to build up the body as he says at the end of verse 26 let all things be done for building up um, for edification that's what the word edification means you do it like you're, like you're constructing something. You know, one week you put on a few more bricks. And the next week, a few more and a few more and, until you're getting a larger, stronger structure. That's what the Christian life should be like. Every week you're getting built up. Uh, if you want a, a simple test of whether something should be shared in a worship service or not, here it is. Does it build people up? If it doesn't build people up, don't, don't bother with it. It's not helpful in a worship service. It's not not an opportunity to boast or brag or whatever. If it's something private, keep it private. But if it's something that will actually help build up the church, it's a great opportunity to do this. You know, it's interesting to think, what do Christians do when they gather? Uh, what do we do when we come together? Well, throughout all the hist- of all history, Christians have done some very basic things. One, they basically, and almost all worship, they sing. Uh, they take a hymn. And they, they sing with one another as a form of worship. Uh, they have someone preach. They have someone explain the scriptures. Uh, somebody give a lesson. Take the scriptures and exposit what's there. Explain it. Apply it to the church family. They have people who 
share what's been going on in their lives or some going on in the mission field. So you have in Book of Acts, somebody who's been on the mission field comes home from missions. What do they do? They get in front of the church, explain what God has been doing on the mission field. Or certainly if there's been a, some miraculous healing or something that's happened, uh, somebody new has come to know the Lord, uh, we'll have baptisms, Lord willing, on Easter. and the Lord's, They celebrate the Lord's Supper. What do they do? They, they share together their spiritual lives and build one another up. I think we've got to be, this is really important, be careful what Scripture says we are called to do in Scripture and what it doesn't say. Um, we want to be clear, especially what it says to do, um, but sometimes I think it's even more important to realize what it doesn't say. Because sometimes we can make a, an idol, in a sense, of something that's not even in Scripture. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. For example, I heard just this week someone said, you know, the right way to worship is kids should be part of the worship service. Not sent away to a separate kids' ministry. And I thought, well, what verse is that? Because <laughs> that's not in the Bible. So to say that that's the right way to worship is your opinion, and it may be good for some churches, and it may be not for other churches. So you're taking an idea that you have and making that a biblical principle. That's not helpful. Uh, that may be good. And what we do is we leave it up to the parents' opinion. If you want to send your kids up to Kid Town, great. If you want to take them with you into the worship service, you're welcome to do that as well. But don't take it and make it a principle when there's nothing in Scripture that does that. Another common one is how you do communion um, and, and baptism, but we'll take communion here. Uh, here's what you need for communion. You need bread and you need grape juice or wine. That's about it. <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no other standards of, as to who serves it, how they serve it, where they serve it, what position you're in, standing or sitting, or um, I've, I've said before, um, which position do you think is the most appropriate to take communion? Standing, sitting, or laying down? And, and if you say, well, let me ask, which is the least appropriate? What would you say? Laying down? Do you know how Jesus and his disciples took communion? <laughs> laying down. That's how they took it. Leaning, that's how you sat at a table, is laying down. Uh, what does scripture actually tell us? To do this in remembrance of him. To do it as an act of worship. To make sure you're sharing from the scriptures, you're singing with one another, you're enjoying a lesson. Make sure there is participation in the church. And make sure what is being said and what is being shared is edifying to the church body. Um, you know, one of the things I would say about this is to be a church that has a lot of participation. <laughs> in some, some sense, you, you can only do so much participation here on Sunday morning because it's there's too many people to have everybody sharing. Uh, so what can, we, what can we do about that? Uh, not a whole lot, but I would say we do need more people involved um, in sound. Um, so, Mike, I'm making a good plug here for the, the AV folks. If you, if you have talents and gifts when it comes to sound and video, we could definitely use you. That's a great way to use your gifts here on Sunday morning. We always are open to having more musicians. Um, we're always having more people who, are, who really have a gift when it comes to, to singing. And make sure you have that gift of singing. Not just you love to sing, but you have a gift. Uh, we'd love to see you get more involved uh, with us. We want to see more participation. But again, it has to go beyond Sunday mornings into community groups, into how we use our gifts throughout the week as well. Worship should be participatory and edifying. And then, let worship be orderly and peaceful. Let it be orderly and peaceful. Verses 27 to 33. Look where he goes there. Verse 27, he says, 
If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three. So he actually gives us a specific amount of people who should do this. Because um, you can imagine, some might say, hey, we're going to just spend six hours <laughs> of people just speaking in tongues or something like that. And he says, no, that should not be the dominant part of your worship. Let the mo- at most, three should speak in a tongue. And he says, of course, let someone interpret. Make sure it's clear to those who come. Verse 28, if there's no one to interpret, this is what he says, keep silent and let him speak to himself and to God. There's that second use of glossolalia as a prayer language. If there's no one there to interpret, keep it to yourself. Still use it. But let it be something you speak only to God and to yourself. And then he says, similarly, with prophets, two or at the most, three. Um, what are these prophets? What's going on with, with these guys? Uh, I talked to somebody afterwards uh, last week, and, and uh, he said, I think the gift of prophecy is really equal to preaching. And I would agree, for the most part. Uh, here's what I would say. I think your preacher better have the gift of prophecy. <laughs> or he's not going to be a very good preacher. He's not going to know what God is saying through his word and what he's trying to say to his people during that time. That's what you want from any good preacher. So there is a good overlap there. You don't want just someone who's a good teacher, but who has a sort of prophetic spirit about it. How does God's word apply to God's people during this time? But I would say it doesn't necessarily become limited then to preachers. God may give a, a word, a leading, to somebody else in the congregation to some, for something else. Uh, as he said, two or the most three. Uh, but the point is this, friends, as he summarizes here in verse 33. Uh, well, actually, verse 31 is very important. Uh, all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. So again, the end goal is edification. Um, verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Uh, there should be a sense of order to worship. Uh, see, if you have in mind here um, that there is sort of a, an overwhelming sense in which everybody's just speaking and acting and uh, as you see in some charismatic circles where it just ends up being a spirit of chaos Paul specifically says that's not the way it should be there should be one person speaking at a time and there should only be two or three people prophesying and everything should be done in a spirit of order Uh, there's an order to it this is one of the reasons why I love being a Baptist by the way (laughs) Uh, I think too much structure can be uh, constricting So not to pick on somebody, but let's think maybe of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ, where everything down to a T follows a specific order of service and there's complete structure to everything. Uh, Sorry, Ed, you know, but but on the other end, I think there's also those uh, on perhaps extreme charismatic circles where there's, there's, there's chaos, there's not clarity as to what's being said. I think what he has here is a certain openness to the Holy Spirit's work, an openness to spontaneity, but clearly, as he says here, in order to it. Why? Because God is a God of peace. It's not just the content of what we say that reveals the character of God, but the way in which we say it. What we say about God is shown by the way we approach God in worship. If there's a reverence and an order, it shows that God is a God of peace and structure. So friends, I hope that is true of us. Uh, as a church, we want to make sure that is true of our worship. Uh, we want to make sure that our worship shows structure, even as it's open to the, how the Holy Spirit might use it in any given setting. So there are certain things about our worship that, is, that are clearly structured. 
Uh, we don't have spontaneous baptisms where you say, just come forward and we'll baptize you. No, we want to know who you are. We want to know whether you've come to know the Lord Jesus, whether you demonstrated that and repentance and faith and been sort of evaluated by the elders. Then we choose to baptize someone. Uh, when it comes to preaching, for example, you ever hear someone say, I've been working on a sermon all week, but the Holy Spirit has led me in a different direction, so I'm doing something totally different. Um, I've heard that too many times <laughs> that I begin to wonder uh, whether that has, has really more become an excuse for lack of preparation. Um, you want definitely your preacher to be someone who has put the work in, put the time in, put the energy in, has prepared a word over the week. The Holy Spirit can work as much in the study as he can in the, in the pulpit. Um, I preach without notes because I want to be open to what I've been preaching without notes. I didn't always preach without notes. Uh, but I put a ton of work into my messages. I hopefully study it in, pray it up, and preach it out. Right? That's, that's my goal. Study it all in there, pray it all up to the Lord, and then preach it out. But definitely want to understand what the Scriptures say clearly before you bring it to God's people. I think the same could be said when it comes to our worship music, our praise and worship. Mike's putting in the time, the energy, the effort to lead a team, to know what, to make sure there is a connection. Uh, we see that sometimes in our prayers as well. Um, our, our sister Donna does the communion prayer once a month, and people have said to her, Donna, you know, look how amazing that is. What you, pre- what you prayed about fit perfectly with the sermon. That's just God's amazing leading. Yes, it is God's leading, but that's because Donna comes to me the week before and says, Pastor Rick, what are you preaching on Sunday? <laughs> I want to make sure everything fits well together, uh, which doesn't make it any less that the Spirit's leading. There's a structure and order. We want to make sure what we are doing is really, truly for edification to God's people. Friends, Spirit-filled worship should be understandable and evangelistic. We should keep in mind that some are coming in who don't know the Lord Jesus, and we want them to understand what we're saying about Him. We want to make sure that everything we do is clear. Worship should be participatory and edifying. It's not a one-man show. It's something we do together as God's people. Worship should be orderly and peaceful. You should have a certain shalom about it. You leave not feeling confused, but feeling it greater at peace that you've come in contact with the Lord of peace. Friends, if we do this, by God's grace, hopefully what he'll bring about is not only that his people would be strengthened and matured in their faith and growing in him, but that God would use us missionally. He'd use us to bring people to himself. I have a quote. It's a little late. Hopefully he uses us as he does, as we see right here in 1 Corinthians 14, that those would come and fall on their face and say, God is truly among you. Gordon Feef, well-known New Testament um, scholar, says, perhaps in our domestication of the Spirit, we have also settled for a safer expression of worship, one in which very few are ever led to exclaim that surely God is among you. Hopefully if you've learned anything from this sermon series on the Holy Spirit, trust in a sovereign God who is good, who is present with his people, who is at work among us and is truly here with us. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you that we can celebrate your presence of 
healing in our sister Elaine and provision for our brother Willie, Lord. We do look forward for his upcoming surgery. Pray for your hand of protection upon him. Be with the doctors and nurses and medical staff and technicians, all who are there. And bring him through this, Lord, that he might also, even as our sister did this morning, stand before us and give testimony to your praise, to to your worth, your value, your eternal goodness. Thank you for the way you have gifted the body of Christ, Lord. We are confident that you love us. You've given us all that we need for life and godliness. That we lack no good thing. Lord, we pray that you would work towards our edification. Help us to keep building, to keep growing, to keep maturing in the faith until that glorious day when we are in your very presence in heaven. Until that day, Lord, keep us faithful, keep us on mission. We pray that we would be mindful of outsiders. Indeed, Lord, we pray that we would be missionally trying to reach our community and our world, that people might encounter the living God, be convicted of sin, which, is, which leads to repentance and ultimately to faith in a God who loves us enough to save us through his Son. So it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.